0: Yeah, another day, another episode. I'm going to try to limit it to one today. I'm going to try to limit today to one episode. And uh, that's always the dilemma, is creating anything, doing anything at all, upsetting the natural balance. I, I don't think I will ever stop feeling some weird sense of maybe not guilt, but caution in doing anything at all. And, you know, I'll listen back to these episodes and I understand that the most disgusting aspect of this show is how self referential it can be. How, you know, referring to getting into this sort of meta talk about my own show. And it seems like everything inev- inevitably does that now. And maybe not everything. I'm probably, you know, generalizing there, but it's very easy to get this meta perspective on yourself today and people do it themselves with their um they have their accounts you know we have this strange view of ourselves this detached view of ourselves that isn't just our daily life that we live through our eyes you know people have accounts they have various forms of creativity they participate in things where they're able to look at themselves And it's not the whole of who they are, but they're able to look at themselves and hear themselves in different ways that they wouldn't otherwise have had access to. And yeah, they can curate it. I mean, it doesn't matter, but it doesn't matter how hard you try to kind of curate the perfect aspects of your life. You know, there's going to be warts. You know, your warts are going to be evident one way or another. You can't escape that. Because it seems like the... The harder you try to hide certain aspects of yourself, the more they become evident in the same way that, you know, paying attention to evil is going to cause evil to grow and be more evident. At the very least, you're going to end up in this relationship to evil. It's the same thing when you try to hide something about yourself. Uh, You know, I I used the example, here's the self-referential thing, but I used the example last night of, you know, if you have some person that you're, they're your enemy, they're your town rival— your town rival. We can't even be in the same room together without uh, having having a problem. You know, it's like some people will go seek that person out and per- and pretend to ignore them. You know, there's this almost like this uh, this empty space in the middle of the room that they won't look at. But by not looking at that one little space in the room, you're actually giving that little space all of your attention. Because you're basing everything else you do around avoiding that little space, that silhouette of that person who you're, in theory, avoiding, but in reality, you are basing your life around them. And it can be the same thing with yourself. When you try to hide things from other people, hide things from yourself, you know, you can end up basing your life around that, and in basing your life around that, you actually emphasize those things more. And uh, with doing a show, I always have this caution, right? I always feel some sense of guilt. And it's not just this show, it's anytime I say anything anywhere. It's anytime I do anything anywhere. It's the act of creation itself, expression. And it's not some, it's, it's, there's nothing like horribly self destructive or self hating about it. It's just some component of. of being alive at least for me and I know I'm not alone fortunately but uh I, it goes back to a Black Sabbath lyric and it, it you know the more time goes by you know Black Sabbath lyrics have always been very strong to me that Geezer Butler Geezer Butler really knew how to you know put wisdom down and you know it just fits so perfectly with Sabbath's music but the line that i always come back to that's really all this talk about good and evil and right and wrong and some of the some of the more um you know some of those those sorts of ideas like in reality i don't think about those in my daily life cuz i'm not entirely sure what they are i mean i think they're good to it's good to have those things it's good to consider those things it's good to have those as examples as guidelines but the reality is it's hard to know And it seems like the more that you try to figure it out, the more that you try to investigate and determine what exactly is right and wrong, uh, the more likely you can be misled. But, uh, you know, the Sabbath lyric that I always come back to is destruction of the empty spaces is my one and only crime. And what I really like about that lyric is that it refers to that as a crime, (laughs) it refers to destruction of the empty spaces which what is that? creation creating something expressing something doing something it is taking some kind of action and even though it is in theory good or constructive or well-meaning destruction of the empty spaces is a crime my one and only crime and that's how I feel about what I do in life everything I do you know it there's always the potential of offsetting some natural balance and it could happen where if you're witnessing something beautiful if you're watching a sunrise with somebody often there's a an unspoken agreement to say nothing and simply observe it and take it in and sometimes when someone when you're in that situation with somebody and they say isn't this beautiful Look at how that ray over there is kind of is sticking over is sticking out and uh, not that, not that you can actually see sun rays. Um interesting how our you know our, our representation of the sun always has these very you know these, these lines sticking out of it that we never see really. Uh, but uh you know someone who's describing it as you're experiencing it that can kind of take you out of the moment. And some people, you know, in the same way that some people want to take pictures, you know, some people have their own forms of celebration. I don't think there's anything wrong with describing something beautiful while you're witnessing it. But a lot of people don't want that. A lot of people feel like it takes something away. It destroys the empty space. Because the idea isn't that emptiness is bad. You know, you think about when someone says, I'm feeling empty. It's always this bad thing, like, like emptiness is somehow... Undesirable You know tell that to the boys in the monastery Tell that to the boys in the monastery They've devoted Their entire lives in a vain Effort and yes it's still vain Even though they've given up everything They've devoted their lives to Seeking emptiness and here you have it And you don't want it But still you know There is this idea of emptiness Like if, if, if we feel empty What is that some sort of uh, Horrible depressing void And, you know, emptiness, of course, isn't that. You know, emptiness is often the natural balance. It is the true essence of something, is this emptiness. And you run some kind of risk, and I'm not saying it's a serious risk, but you do run some some kind of risk when you disrupt that. When you say something, when you create something, when you do anything, and I mean, that's sort of the human spiritual dilemma is just you have to live, you have to do something, and there's a give and a take to that, uh, and it's not just don't do bad things, don't be a mean, cruel person, it's also sometimes when you're well-meaning, it's, and I'm not even getting into some, like, path of, you know, uh the path to hell good intentions i'm not even getting into that kind of thing it's just sometimes just meaning well and actually doing well actually doing something meaningful and nice sometimes that even that disrupts the natural balance you can see where if someone's ever given you a gift that you truly don't want and you feel pressured to keep it that's kind of destruction of the empty spaces it's kind of a crime oh my god Someone gave me, a, uh, someone gave me a, a potted plant today for my birthday. It's a fucking crime what they did to me. You know, it's like you can't get that way about it. But still, sometimes if someone gives you something that you don't need or don't want, it can feel like uh, you were almost accosted in some way. And so you can see where that Sabbath lyric, I mean, you can really apply it to anything. And I feel it every time I hit record. I feel it every time I upload a show, even though people have to deliberately seek this show out and listen to this, whatever this is, it's still this this feeling like I'm offsetting some kind of natural balance. And I feel it in other creative endeavors. I feel like it when I, when I just say something to somebody sometimes. You know, I, I talked yesterday about, uh, you know, how you can just change the entire course of your day by just having a conversation with somebody and... Uh, To an introvert, that seems like it's a a, a destructive act. Because to an introvert, their sense of balance, like what their sense of comfort, is partially derived from silence or limiting the amount of social interaction they have. And so the idea of having a conversation especially small talk, is some kind of, it's a destructive act in some way. And I'm not saying that's right, but I think that they are coming from a place where they understand, an introvert understands that there is some kind of balance, but it also goes the other way, where somebody who is very extroverted and and needs a lot of social interaction silence to them or not saying that thing, not having that conversation, that feels destructive to them. You know, and, and both of them are right, or at least not wrong, you know, to somebody who feeds, who grows off of conversation. They grow from the conversations they have, and they like to interact with people. When somebody doesn't participate in that or when something isn't said, it feels like something is being destroyed. Because they feel that saying something is part of the natural order or balance. So you can see where different people have you know different ideas of give and take and creation and destruction... And, uh, you know, I think you could really make your, yourself go crazy if you, every time you do anything, you beat yourself up. Like, oh, I said something. But people do that all the time. I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. You know, people do that to themselves just for the the most minor thing. For saying something that didn't come out the way they intended feels like a very self-destructive act for some people. And, uh, you know, I do listen back to this show at least once, usually not more than once. I feel like that would be too much. And in that way, I can kind of justify it to myself um, where, I mean, I listen back, quality control to, you know, because sometimes I'll record an episode and I think, oh, that went that was perfect. I couldn't have expressed myself better. And I'll listen back to it and it's just stumbling, stuttering, repeating myself that thing that I, I said that I, I thought I phrased perfectly made no sense. And so there's, you know, an amount of learning, you know, because this is some kind of creative exercise. It is some kind of exercise. I think it's good to review what you do. Uh, but it, there's also a, there's also something that's kind of like a mantra, you know. Self-help encourages people to write their goals down, write your ideas down, and in doing that, you make them more real. Uh, You know, mantras, you're repeating a certain phrase over and over again, and the idea is that you are somehow making that a part of your reality by emphasizing it, by repeating it. And so this show kind of has that purpose for me, you know, and this is exposing a very self-indulgent part of this show, and I'm not entirely comfortable with what I'm saying right now, even uh but there is this aspect of of mantra to this where listening back is it's it almost reinforces it you know it reinforces the the ideas that i think are helpful to me even it's that preach what you need idea that i like to talk about where it's you know how much of what you say is what you think other people need how much of what you say is trying to set other people on the right path And is that your job? How much of what you say is really directed toward yourself? And it's it's what people bring up when you're when you're a mean person who's like, you know, always nitpicking and pointing out the flaws in other people and people, you know, it's just basic psych 101. It's like, is it really about the other people or is it about you? are you projecting your own self-hatred onto other people and it doesn't have to be self-hatred but even just your own criticisms of yourself are you just noticing them in other people because you know that they are in you too and that familiarity uh you know it's it's it, with that familiarity with your own problems that you wish you could address with yourself, it's easier for you to try to address them with other people by nitpicking and criticizing. It's kind of like that idea, too, where uh, in that way, you're really, even when you're criticizing somebody or being mean-spirited, you're still preaching what you need or you think you need. But it goes for constructive ideas as well. It goes for helping yourself as well. And when I say you, oftentimes I mean me. You know, I'm often preaching what I need, uh, and so this show, in that way, is sort of a mantra. You know, it's sort of a mantra, even though it's not something that I'm just quietly repeating in my head while I meditate. Um, but destruction of the empty spaces, you know, it's is my one and only crime. I just, I love that it's referred to as a crime, because it often feels that way for me. And I don't think I'm going to stop being a criminal in that sense. You know, I don't think I'm going to ever stop expressing myself in life as much as I would like to. As much as I would like to renounce everything. Uh, But somehow that would feel destructive too. It's, It's like in the Bible, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's sort of that idea where no matter what, you can't escape the ego. No matter what, you can't escape your own vanities. And... That includes for total renunciation. You know, in some ways, that's an even more egotistical act. It's like, I have such little control over my own egotistical impulses that I have to devote my life to that. I have to devote my life to renunciation. Again, we're back to the idea of um, resist not evil, where it's like, because in resisting evil, you define your life by evil, which is the thing that you're trying to avoid, and if you're defining your life in opposition to that, you can't escape that thing, and that's sort of how I feel about asceticism, renunciation, and I think it's why Gautama Buddha found the middle way, I mean, it very much is, you know, where it was like, well, asceticism isn't it, and overindulgence isn't it, so what are my options here? black and white aren't it so what are my options you know that's sort of sort of the process he is alleged alleged to have gone through and it's it's kind of how i feel about yeah like rena- you know re- total renunciation of worldly pleasures that sort of asceticism isn't for me and i and it, it comes across just as egotistical in some ways and because you're fixing your star to worldly pleasures, in a way. By defining your life partially by the absence of worldly pleasures, you're in a relationship with those worldly pleasures anyway. Um, destruction of the empty spaces, though, it's uh, in addition to enjoying the fact that it's referred to as a crime, almost like an original sin. You know, it's almost like that idea where it's like, destruction of the empty spaces because we can't avoid doing it and because we do have some sort of dilemma around it because i'm certainly not alone in feeling some sense of guilt for just disrupting the natural silence in a room or you think about you know we live in a world now where the people the the means of production are in the hands of the people they make videos they make uh, And, you know, posts, they express themselves all day, they post pictures of themselves, they share what they do. Anybody who has a YouTube account, a Facebook account, if they're on Instagram, if they're sending people messages, if they're sending their friend text messages, you know, they are disrupting some form of inherent emptiness, and people want to get messages, they want to see things, but yet people also get annoyed when they receive a message. They resent somebody when they get online, and even though they willingly allowed somebody on their friend list, they'll see what that person posts and think, like, eh, this person, they're always doing this, and they think so highly of themselves, or they think they're always right, and it's, you know, there's this weird form of... Um, what's the word? Um, what's the word when people agree to do something it's like it's like this um it's used it's used like when people talk about like sex like getting permission it's like basically you've given someone permission consent you've given your consent to this person destroying the empty spaces like when you add somebody on facebook like you've given your consent to that person expressing themselves as they see fit and there are you know ways that you can limit that you know, without even turning them into your enemy for life by defriending them, you know, because uh, you can, you can, uh, you know, not see what they post. And in that way, there's really you have every means available to avoid seeing what they see. But some people will allow that person to continue to post things, and and they will look at them deliberately, because even though it feels disruptive or weird, or they just don't like it there's still a tendency to want to see it and that's sort of one of you know the other core human dilemmas and it goes back to resist not evil where it's like you end up not liking something or being opposed to something but yet you keep it in your focus anyway oh i don't like how she's always going on about donald trump she's always posting some you know she's always she's obsessed with hating donald trump but then you become obsessed with hating her you know, so it's easy to do that. It's easy to get sucked into that. And, you know, we do tend to see other people's, the way that other people destroy the empty spaces, the way that they express themselves. We have a tendency to see that as some form of crime. And of course, nobody's going to jail over it yet. Although they do, I mean, because we do have laws around that. We have obscenity laws, we do have guidelines for what's appropriate expression. So you know, even though I'm using crime very liberally here, it's a very general use of the word crime to mean some sort of disruption of a natural state, almost like a sin, or, you know, somehow straying from some pure state. You know, even though I'm using it in that sense, it's like we can see where this stuff actually does become a crime. It becomes a crime to express yourself, and we've we know about authoritarian countries and how they handle things but even in non-authoritarian countries you know we see where certain behavior certain forms of expression uh, are banned are censored so these things become real crimes and in the in the days of kings it could be purely because a king just doesn't have taste in something. I mean, you think about the art that Hitler had destroyed, where it was just pretty much his taste. You know, it could be, a, I don't like, a, you know, I don't like paintings of flowers, so we'll destroy them. They're destroying the empty spaces by painting flowers, so we're going to make it a real punishable crime. So it does become a real crime, but I'm very interested in that, and I always have been, that just gut feeling you get where it's like, I'm disrupting something, and it's not about execution, it's not about doing a good job or not, because it doesn't matter, I mean, there's things that I'm immensely proud of, and I still have that feeling. Or I'll see things from other people because you know I'm not above that. I'm not above feeling that way about other people, and it especially it used to be very true, much more true. Where I would see things and think, "Why did you need to say that?" And you think about Livia Soprano on The Sopranos. She's looking out her window at her neighbor. You know, and she's—I love that character. I love Livia Soprano. The most recent couple times I've watched The Sopranos. Livia is my favorite. Every time I watch it, I have a different favorite character, but Livia has been my favorite because she captures a certain sort of person that seems like a caricature of a mean old lady, but there are real people like that. And uh, she's apparently based loosely on the creator David Chase's mom. Uh, So I think there was, I think that they channeled that. I think they channeled a real sort of person. But the point being, Livia Soprano, she's like, she looks out from her blinds. And looks at her neighbor like checking her mail. Everything her neighbor does, she's like, what's she doing? What is she doing? She's checking her mail. You know, that's sort of the the feeling that you can develop. You know, that, that's where that feeling... I mean, and I think that feeling is there for a lot of us. Where it's like, we feel like people are constantly destroying the empty spaces. Like people are constantly disrupting the natural emptiness. Which is is the harmony, I guess. And uh, but in doing that, you know, it can develop into this thing where, yeah, you are peeking out from your blinds and getting mad at your neighbor just for checking the mail or or somehow using that as an excuse to judge them or everything they do. And I like the example of peeking out from behind your blinds because that's always used, you know, the idea of like some old person peeking out from their blinds where it's like they're deliberately looking, they're choosing to look. You're making a choice to observe that person in the same way that when you judge somebody on your Facebook account or, for that matter, at your table, when you go out to dinner with somebody and, and, you know, if you feel like, oh, you know, I don't—because I personally, I don't like to talk while I'm eating. I don't like to talk while I eat. I just think it's one of those things. And, uh, you know, I remember hearing as a little kid that my grandpa didn't like people eating at the dinner table, and I didn't really understand it then. And, uh, but over time, I'm like, that makes total sense. You know, it makes total sense not to talk while you eat because it actually takes away from your sensory enjoyment of the food. And maybe it's not just about that, maybe it is about the social experience. But I've had that feeling in myself before where I think, you know, somebody is destroying the empty spaces at this dinner table. And the empty spaces are what allow me to appreciate my meal. How dare how dare you want to spend time with me and talk to me at this dinner table where I'm focused on my food? So, you can easily become the destroyer yourself, though, when you have those when you act or you express yourself based on those impulses, because it becomes this thing. It's almost like um, that thing like baseball kids do baseball kids when they like all try to grab the bat and put their hands over each other and whoever is the last person loses or the winner I don't remember who I don't even remember who wins and loses whether it's like the lowest hand on the baseball bat or the highest hand but it's almost like you're playing that game with somebody when it's like you point out you're destroying the empty spaces and then they're like but by telling me that I'm destroying the empty spaces you're destroying the empty spaces so who's the real criminal you know you can play this game where you keep going back and forth and I understand most people probably don't think this way. <laughs> uh, but they still act on it. They still act on some of these impulses. Uh, so it's, it's just something that I contend with, and I'm glad, you know, because I do, I you know, maybe you should be deliberate. Maybe you should know what you're expressing, but maybe you shouldn't overthink it either. And uh, there's also the aspect of, like, Your intentions—when you express yourself, your intentions, you know, might not be interpreted the same way that you intend—you might not express yourself the way that you actually feel. And that happens to me a lot when I listen back to this show, you know, when I do review an episode of this show after I publish it. I mean, the one I did last night, I quoted— there was a quote that I mentioned that my mom really liked before she passed, and she had written it down on a Post-it note, and I misspoke when I referenced it. You know, the, quote, the actual quote was, anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still, and in the episode I said, anyone convinced of their will is of the same opinion still, which still fits, because if you're convinced of your will, of course you're going to be of the same opinion still. Uh, But the actual quote that I was referring to was anyone convinced against their will. And I do wonder about that, you know, not to get too far into that quote, but I do, since I misspoke last night about it, I don't feel like it was properly discussed. And with that quote, you know, I I really, I want to ask somebody, you know, have you ever convinced somebody... Truly convince them, not coerce them, not force them to believe what you believe through some sort of extortion, you know, not through some sort of coercion or, you know, psychic extortion, but I really wonder, have you ever just sat down and laid out the facts in such a way that somebody comes over to your way of thinking, and how do you know you didn't just coerce them? How do you know that you truly convinced them? I know it happens but I just wonder how often it actually happens. You know, how, What's the frequency of that in your life? Especially to people who are continually arguing. Who are very outspoken. I wonder how often have you actually convinced somebody. And I feel like if you're self-aware, you can tell if somebody actually agrees with you or not. You can tell if somebody's just going through the motions. And I think that would be very difficult as a boss. If you were someone's supervisor or boss... Or just had any kind of official authority over someone at all. Because I'd be constantly worried that, you know, everybody's just, nobody agrees with me. Nobody actually thinks that my ideas are good. They just know I have authority. And through that authority, I can just coerce them without even trying. So it'd be, it's the more power you have, it's like the more concern you have to have over whether. Anyone truly agrees with you at all. And you can see where people don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. You know, I'm going to do it anyway. Because, you know, my word is the final word. But that's also the secret superpower that everybody has too, where no matter how hard someone tries to convince you and barring physical violence or imprisonment, In your heart, you can always believe what you believe to be true, and if someone tries to convince you against your will, it doesn't take your will away from you. Even if you have to go through the motions, even if if you have to pretend that somebody else is right, in the same way that a boss can do whatever he wants because he's the boss, you can still feel whatever you feel, even if you're the lowest person on the totem pole, but you have to stay in touch with that. You have to stay in touch with that. You have to stay in touch with your intuition as part of it. Because that's a strange feeling when, you, when someone tells you to do something or not do something that goes complete opposite of your intuition, that sort of disharmony, that sort of dissonance. You, know, you can't package that feeling. You can't sell that feeling. And when you reharmonize, like if you have that feeling, if you have that feeling of dissonance, where something feels like it's just the complete opposite of your intuition, and you're forced to go along with it, it's amazing when you find that harmony again. Um, destruction of the empty spaces. You know, it's just it's the the original sin that we all have is this need to express ourselves and exist at all and we consume i mean that's the other side of it is that through an act of destruction we sustain ourselves and all creatures depend on it in some way we have to kill things even if they're plants you know we destroy these these living things and I'm a meat eater you know I eat meat and uh, it's but it's that's an act of destruction in and of itself so through acts of destruction, we also sustain ourselves and we require social interaction. So, even getting into this, you know, more out there idea of destroying empty spaces by simply saying anything at all, by simply saying hello to somebody. And sometimes it feels that way. I mean, I have neighbors who, it's one thing when somebody never says hi back, it's weird when they occasionally do. Like, I have a next door neighbor and they're young people you know, definitely, you know, like LGBT and they're uh, they're good people, you know, and, and they've been really nice to me. Um, but there's one of them who, it's just, it's a weird thing where they will occasionally say hi back to me. Not always. You know, we've never had any close interaction, but it's just an interesting thing. And I've had that experience with a lot of people. It seems to be just a symptom of my generation too. And maybe maybe I'm just saying it's my generation because that's what I have, at, that's what I see, you know, maybe it would. Maybe there are always people like this, I'm, I'm sure there are, but it just seems like people struggle with even basic hello, and I don't always say hello to people, but it's like if someone says hello to me, I'm going to say something back, but I'll experience that, I, sometimes it'll happen on the street, and it's, it's hard to say, like, when I decide to destroy that empty, it's hard to, it's hard to, I don't know why it is, but sometimes, even if I'm on a walk in a complete different part of town, I'm just out there, I'm just going for a walk. Sometimes I'll pass by someone and I I decide to say hello and other times I don't. And I don't know what my motivation is. I mean, part of it is if it's a woman. Like if it's a woman by herself, I usually allow them to say hello first. And I learned that many years ago when I first started hiking. Because I used to get kind of miffed if I was on a hike in the woods. And if you pass by somebody in the woods you know, you're the only people on this trail, and it's more awkward not to say hello. But I I noticed that sometimes people don't say hello back, and I used to get upset, and I noticed it would happen particularly often with women, where I would say hi, and not in some, you know, I wasn't leering at them, there was nothing creepy about it, but I would just say hi, and they wouldn't say hi back. And it wasn't that I was looking for some kind of validation or attention, it was just on a basic Human to human respect level I remember feeling just a little put off A little, maybe not angry But somewhere, you know On on the road to anger maybe And uh, I just remember thinking like, Why don't they say hi back? It's rude And then I understood I was like, oh, they're terrified of me When a woman sees me on the trail Not like because there's anything Particular about me But I'm a man I am the thing that attacks people I am the thing that attacks women and has attacked women for you know si- since the beginning of time and not that I have this low opinion of myself as a man but you know you just look at look at violent crime look at sexual crime you know look at the body of evidence that is there and that body is in the shape of a man and when I understood that I was like oh you know, They are absolutely terrified of me. They don't know what I'm going to do. And whether I say hi or not... Like, if I say hi, that doesn't mean that I'm safe. It doesn't mean that I'm okay. And they don't know whether engaging me back is the right thing or not. Because if they say hi back, maybe I'll see that as an invitation to, like, lunge at them or something. And, you know, unfortunately these things don't really come down to saying hi or not saying hi, where it's like, if if you don't say hi back to me, that's not going to stop me from being a predator either, you know? And fortunately, I'm not a predator. You know, fortunately, I don't have those impulses. But when I understood that, oh, yeah, I have the silhouette of a man, I'm a man, and it's, even though most men aren't going to attack a woman on a trail, otherwise we'd hear about it a lot more, but even though most men aren't going to do that the people who do that are men so when i understood that it it gave me a sense of peace and i was like oh you know if they want to engage me i'll say hi back to them but they're concerned with their own well-being first and foremost and they might be frozen even if they're not even if there's no imminent threat just the prospect of turning a corner and seeing a man walking toward you is enough to maybe slow your gears down, you know, and not think in the normal social way, you know, you're not gonna, it's not like you're seeing your friend out and about, you know, it's like you're seeing this person who could be a threat to you, and in that way, I learned that it's not my job to destroy that empty space, because I am the potential threat to them in that situation. It's not my job to try and control the situation. And when I figured that out, I was just like, oh, yeah, that's, that's fine. Of course. And so if I see a man on a trail, uh, and I say hi, and they don't say anything back, I, you know, I give myself permission to go, you motherfucker, you, you motherfucker, you. you. know, I, <laughs> I give myself permission, because it's like, I'm not a threat to you. But no, I kid, but... um. That is something you figure out where it's like there's a time and a place where destroying that empty space, offsetting that balance is more appropriate than others. In the same way that if you're listening to somebody give a lecture, you know, wait until the the Q&A session at the end before saying something, you know, you're going to destroy the empty space if you start talking to the person next to you or if you ask a question out of turn you know so we set up these designated times and places where it's okay to destroy the empty space where it's less of a crime it might not i don't think you're ever going to escape the fact that there's something kind of criminal about disrupting the natural balance of things Because even during the Q&A session, see, uh, talking about offsetting the natural balance. um, No, I feel like barking is more balanced than anything. Barking is very purposeful. But you can see where, even during the designated Q&A session at a lecture there's always that guy who asks a really obnoxious self-serving question. I mean, it used to happen in class. We would have these things at my college called seminar that were, you would take the class and you would break them down into smaller groups and they would be with a, like, let's say 20, 30 people with one professor. And it allowed, it allowed you to have, you know, more intimate discussions than, um, than the, the bigger lectures. So you'd have these little smaller discussion groups and, in those, there'd always be that one guy who dominates the conversation, and it wasn't me. Fortunately, somehow, it wasn't me. But there was one guy; he would always talk. You'd hear about his parents, you'd hear about his little brother, his girlfriend. He loved to talk about his girlfriend, and he would dominate every discussion. And he would, if there was an opportunity for to pipe up, he would. And people would kind of roll their eyes because it was almost like, even though this is within the rules, even though this is within the parameters there's something disruptive about it, his attempt to to dominate, his attempt to say every little thing that's on his mind. And I, you know, I, I feel like I do that with this podcast. I feel like even though this is my own little corner of the world, this is my own little soapbox, there's still that feeling where I'm like, oh, I'm, maybe I'm doing that. Maybe I'm doing that. And you shouldn't torture yourself over it. You shouldn't turn it into, you know, some you know act of self-hatred or you know see it as some grand flaw in your existence but at the same time i think wrestling with some of these things like the time and place and doing the right thing at the right time it's not a bad i it's it's not a bad exercise it's not a bad exercise to to put yourself through now and again um, especially because it is powerful. Doing anything is powerful in the same way that just starting a conversation with a stranger can completely change the, for sure that day. It'll change that day for you, but it could change your life if that person becomes a friend or if that conversation turns into an argument. You know, it, it, it changes the course of events. Every little thing you do changes something. And I think that's what's at the heart of the crime of destroying empty space is that everything impacts something but uh, the the criminal nature of us all the original sin and uh, it's you know we also seek that out though we also seek these people out we seek the If someone is disruptive, we do seek them out, and that is what yesterday's episode was about with resist not evil, where we seek evil out. This thing that we see as the disruptor, the deceiver, we seek that out, where people seek out Donald Trump. They seek him out. They pay attention to him. And they revolve around him. Their day revolves around him. And they see him as... They think Donald Trump is a criminal disrupting the natural balance. But they in turn are fixated on that. They're, they become fixated on the disruption. And in turn become disruptive themselves. But another idea I wanted to get at, which doesn't tie in directly... But I guess it does, it ties in. But I, used, I talked yesterday about the, the story of the sheep in the Bible, of the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, and 99 of them have stayed in the field, and one of them has strayed, has gone to the mountains. And he seeks that one out. Because that's when we think that somebody is against us, or we think that somebody doesn't like us, that person becomes more important to us than all the people who like us. And so we seek that person out in some way that person stands out to us and it eats away at us that there's this one this one thing that you know isn't on my side it's why people focus on their haters because they this this thing isn't this thing isn't in agreement with me and i want everyone i want everything to be in agreement with me so you end up focusing on that one person, that one sheep. You seek out that one sheep who has wandered off. And uh, in some ways, though, it's easy to confuse that with... In some way, it's almost... You know, because it's like when people focus on someone like Donald Trump or they focus on a very large, looming figure, it's almost a form of that, but not quite. Because you're never going to bring that person in. They don't know who you are. And that's, I think, the most frustrating thing for these people is that they're never going to bring Donald Trump in harmony with their way of seeing the world. You can try to do that with your family and friends. You can try to do it. But again, it, it comes back to the quote, you know, anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. And so when you go after that sheep, if that sheep truly wants to exist in the mountains, it's a mountain sheep. You know, even if you bring it back to the flock, is that going to bring harmony to the flock? Is having all a hundred sheep in the field going to actually bring harmony to the flock? It's going to be important for you, and if that sheep realizes that it was actually meant to be in the flock all around, well, then everybody's happy. I mean, it's like the prodigal son, also from the Bible, where, you know, the other sons are like, you know, we were here all along. You know, we were here with our father all along helping him, And our other brother went off, he was a philanderer, he went off and he did whatever, he was partying, he was a loser. Our other brother's a loser, and he wasted his money, he's he's been off doing, he hasn't helped our family at all. And then the prodigal son returns, and there's a banquet, it's this big deal that the son has come back in harmony with the family. And it's because there's contrast. With the other sons, there's no contrast. I mean, it's it's like uh, talking about getting grades in school. That was in, I think, yes, another episode yesterday. Uh, and uh, you know how it's not a good story when you go from a B- minus to a B, or a B-plus to an A-minus. It doesn't make for a great story. It's good. It's a good thing that you improved. But the sons, you can think of the prodigal son story with the good sons who were with the father all along, helping him. You can think of them like B-plus students who may have eventually worked themselves up to an A and got a pat on the head from their father. But the prodigal son, he was getting Fs. He was getting straight Fs. The prodigal son was failing out of school, and then he came back and he got an A. Then he started getting A's, and the father was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Let's hold a banquet for this guy. We're gonna have a pizza party. You know, we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a cake. Let's get a cake for for my prodigal son because he was getting straight Fs. He was failing out of college, and now he's getting nothing but A's. And that contrast is what causes the celebration. That constructive contrast of going from an F to an A is why the father focuses all of his energy and celebrates that son so much. And it's why the other brothers feel a sense of resentment, because they're like, we were here all along getting B pluses and As, but there was no contrast, there was no story. And it's also why in recovery, somebody who was you know, falling through the abyss and had, you know, a horrible drinking or drug problem, and they beat it, and they're now living, you know, a very good, healthy life, and they have a lot of insight into that experience. The reason why that person is celebrated and listened to in recovery circles is because there's contrast. They went from one end to another, and there's a reason why people in recovery are never going to listen to that guy who goes, I never drank, Someone who never drank has nothing to offer somebody in recovery. Just like, you know, the prodigal sons aren't ce- or sorry, the 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 non-prodigal sons aren't as celebrated by the father because they were just always doing well, and it's not that they weren't appreciated. You know, just like somebody who's in recovery, it's like they can appreciate somebody who simply doesn't drink. Oh, you never. Oh, you. You had one beer in college just to to feel like you had the experience, and you never developed an issue with it. Cool, that's great. Oh, and you're a good person. Oh, that's great. You know, but your story doesn't have anything to offer anybody. There's no contrast. You know, there's there's no. You weren't getting Fs, and now you're getting As. You were always a B plus student, and and or an A student for that matter. And so your story has no contrast to it and isn't much of a story. So people in recovery, they're going to need stories of people going from the bottom to the top, or even to the midway point. You know, because any kind of contrast is meaningful. Any kind of contrast creates some kind of interesting or compelling story. So that plays a role in this too, and it's, it's why the shepherd is after that one sheep in the mountains, because it's like there's contrast there. That sheep strayed. So bringing that sheep back becomes a cause to celebrate. The prodigal son returning and coming back into harmony with his family, the sheep coming back into harmony with the flock, it is something to celebrate because of the contrast. And... Uh, I don't know. I mean, is that, does that mean you should always do what other people want you to do? Of course not. But should you deliberately do what other people don't want you to do as some stubborn act of rebellion? No to that, too. It goes back to asceticism and overindulgence. You know, are you because some people overindulge, are you going to be an ascetic? Are you going to starve yourself? Are you going to deny yourself all sensory pleasure and enjoyment? You know, it's, it's the epiphany that Gautama Buddha had, where, you know, it, the correct response to overindulgence is not total denial and deprivation. And the response to deprivation, the response to taking no finding no enjoyment in the senses is also not to overindulge the senses and i'm uh, you know i try to get away from words like moderation moderate compromise politically socially in every sense of the, that those words can be used i don't really like them even though those things are real there are people who are moderates there are people who make compromises uh, there is a, moderation is a real thing, but I think why I get away from those particular words is I feel like they are too dependent on the extremes, and, you know, it's, I, I don't, I, I feel like you can exist between and separate, somewhere between those two extremes, and maybe not directly even in between them, without trying to compromise them. You know, to, to to be some peacemaker. You know, I feel like you don't have to be some peacemaker trying to be like, oh, well, you think this and you think this. Do you guys realize that you have this in common? You know, I, I don't think you need to be that person who's trying to bridge a gap all the time between two things that are that believe they are in opposition to each other. Um, not that there's anything wrong with trying to bridge that gap. I mean, I think it's it's very helpful, especially politically, when someone is able to bridge a gap But I I guess I get away from words like compromise and moderation. Because I think you can be something unto yourself without being on one extreme or the other. And I think that was the idea behind the middle path. You know, where, yeah, you're not going to overindulge because some people completely renounce the senses. And you're not going to renounce the senses because some people overindulge. But you're also not going to try to compromise because people do each of those things either. You're not looking to find a compromise. You're just you're looking to take things as they are. Which means you have to sustain yourself. You have to sustain yourself with food. And you might as well enjoy that food when you eat it. But you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't overindulge. You shouldn't eat more than you need to. You shouldn't take more than you need to. But when you need to, you should enjoy what you're doing, when you're doing it, while you are doing it. Is that moderation? Is that compromise? I don't think so. I think that is firmly understanding what you are doing. Is knowing why you are doing what you are doing and doing what you feel is the... What is necessary? Because that goes back to the destruction of the empty spaces. Some destruction of the empty spaces is necessary. Sometimes you need to say things. Sometimes you need to create things. You can't lock yourself in a room, a dark room, and never talk to anybody and never make anything, never have any ideas, never have a conversation. You can't do that. I mean, you can, but you know, you can imagine how it plays out. You can't torture yourself over the fact that there is some inherent crime to disrupting the natural balance of life. But life doesn't exist without disrupting that natural balance too. So you can see where life depends on disruption. Life depends on dis- destruction too. Life depends on the very disruption. That seems to offset the natural balance. And if life is the most natural thing available to us, you know, most of our idea of nature, when we talk about nature, we are talking about the living things out in the world. We aren't talking about just the dirt and the rock, you know, we're talking about all of the life out there. Our idea of nature is completely based around what is living. What is living in its natural element? What haven't we disrupted? What haven't we destroyed? Because we don't see ourselves as nature. We can talk about our, our nature. You know, we say human nature. But we always have this separation. And a lot of what we consider exclusively human behavior is the destruction of that empty space. Wiping out a, you know, a forest to build a building to build a house, for shelter. And uh, so we see ourselves as separate from that nature that's out there, even though we are living too, even though we are surviving too, we tend to see our own behavior as somehow disruptive to the natural balance of that other nature that is all around us and in us and that we are a part of. But you have to recognize that animals do it, too. Animals kill other things to live. Animals build nests. Animals destroy empty spaces in their own way, too. And that's why I say life is dependent in some way on that very thing. Life itself is in some way criminal. You know, it's it's why uh, the Lion King doesn't have... Scenes where the lions are just tearing apart innocent zebras, even though lions in real life do that. We have this tendency to depict nature a certain way. We have a tendency to depict animals a certain way in cartoons, but, you know, it's not just that we turn them into cartoons, but we actually hide certain behaviors of theirs because it's not what we want to see. We don't want to see Simba grow up and rip the throat out of a zebra or a, an antelope or whatever it is that lions kill which is like everything right you know lions kill everything so even though that's a part of nature and in doing that the lion is disrupting literally physically destroying something but we don't depict that because we have this separation it's not just that we sep- we feel it's not just that we feel separate from nature It's that when we depict nature in certain ways, we we even separate nature from itself, which seems to be at the heart of our guilt and our caution. I mean, it doesn't have to be full-blown guilt, but just the caution that we exercise when we express ourselves, or the feeling of, should I have said that? Should I have done that? Should I have created that? Should I do anything at all? It seems to come from this feeling that we have separated ourselves from nature and are separating ourselves further. Yet in our depictions of nature, we separate nature from itself too, so we can't seem to avoid doing that. And it seems that our survival might be dependent on it in some way. Our existence, our progress, our personal progress, our progress as a species seems to depend some way on being at odds with nature but then also reconciling with it too. So in that way, we are sort of like a sheep returning to a flock, but then straying again, or we're the prodigal son who strays from nature and then returns to it. But it's not just a one-time event. We seem to continually do it. We seem to destroy the empty spaces and then try to fill them. And you might ask, well... Why destroy it at all and then fill it in this continual cycle when I could just sit here, when I could just do nothing, when I could not exist? Well, the thing about existing is, (laughs) uh, you know, non-existence isn't an option. If you exist, non-existent isn't an option. And if you're someone who's ever considered suicide or, you know, takes risks and doesn't value your own life, you should be aware that killing yourself or putting yourself in a position to be maimed or killed in some way, that is another form of destroying an empty space. And try to, put, try to do the math on that one. You know, you think about the disruption that that causes, the disruption that the loss of human life causes to everybody around them. And not just the people they know, but many people hear about it. Many people empathize, sympathize. So you see where even choosing death doesn't allow you to escape the destruction of empty spaces. And in some ways, that's a far greater act of destruction. I see a land where children can run free so terrible